From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, May 2nd. I'm Marco Werman. Dissident Chen Guangchong is out of the U.S. Embassy in China after six days. Now he reportedly wants to leave the country. Meanwhile, China wants an American apology in the case, but this former U.S. official says it won't get one. The U.S. is not going to apologize. That will not happen. Also in the program, an immigrant member of an anti-immigration party runs for London mayor. My three children are born in London, and I've been here for almost a quarter of a century. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It looked like a U.S.-China diplomatic crisis had been avoided earlier today. Now there's confusion over the fate of blind Chinese dissident Chen Guangchang. Chen had been sheltered by the U.S. Embassy in Beijing for six days after escaping from house arrest. But today he left the embassy and was escorted to a hospital by U.S. Ambassador Gary Locke. Word was he wanted to stay in China, but Chen then reportedly changed his mind and now wants to leave. Meanwhile, China is demanding an apology from the United States for its role in the case. In a moment, we'll discuss the impact on U.S.-China relations with President Obama's former point man on China. But first, we're going to unravel the day's events with the world's Beijing correspondent, Mary Kay Magstad. She's with us in Boston. And Mary Kay, first of all, briefly remind us who is Chen Guangcheng and how did he end up at the U.S. Embassy? So Chen is a self-taught lawyer from Shandong province in eastern China. And he has for years been advocating on behalf of women who had been forcibly sterilized or forced to have late-term abortions so that local officials could claim success with their family planning quotas. Um, He was put in prison for four years. When he got out, he should have been free, but the local officials decided to put him under unofficial house arrest with thugs surrounding his home, occasionally entering the home and beating up him and his wife and and his mother, not allowing his six-year-old daughter to go to school. Uh, After enduring this for a couple of years, he feigned illness for a while so that they would lower their guard, escaped at night, and fled to Beijing with some help from other activists. So where is he now and where is his family? At at last uh, notice, he was in Chaoyang Hospital in Beijing, in in central Beijing, and his family was with him. Um, He hadn't seen his 10-year-old son for a couple of years, so there was a, a nice family reunion there. But uh, after leaving the U.S. Embassy, uh, he appears to have gotten a little spooked. He seems to have thought that U.S. officials, U.S. diplomats would be staying with him longer than they did. They said they would accompany him from the embassy to the hospital, and and they did that. But then they left. Uh, And then there were plainclothes Chinese police around and and, uh, people he was talking to, friends of his who are also activists, who have also served time in prison. They're telling him, you know, it's not necessarily safe for you. The Chinese government makes promises, but, you know, who knows if they're going to keep them. So now he's saying, you know, actually, I'm not so sure I do want to stay. Maybe I want to leave. I mean, it seemed initially today as if some kind of deal was struck uh, that satisfied China, the U.S., and Chen. 
Uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who's in Beijing, said the deal, quote, reflected his choices and our values, end quote. What was the plan that was so supported by the U.S.? It's a little hazy, but the plan seems to be that the Chinese government agreed that he and his family, instead of returning to their home village in Shandong, where the thugs are awaiting them, could stay in Beijing or somewhere else in China, um, that he could have access to higher education. He could study law. He was self-taught, so this would be a new thing for him and that his safety would be more or less insured, although there were no details released about how that would be guaranteed. Um, For most Chinese citizens, most of the time, they live a pretty safe life. I mean, when you have problems is when you're an activist challenging the way the Chinese government or Chinese public security does things. And he's done that. Other lawyers in China who have uh, taken an activist role trying to take on civil rights cases have had a terrible time over the last year and a half. And I think he's recognizing as he talks to more people now that he's out and free that there's a very tense environment in China right now to do the kind of work he'd like to do. Mm. I mean, Mary Kay, you've seen all sorts of ups and downs in China since you've covered this big country, this story that is China. What is it like watching this particular episode unfold? Well, extraordinarily daring on the part of Chen Guangcheng and you know, giving the Chinese government a real challenge at a really interesting moment when there's been a lot of talk about, you know, we need to move in the direction of more political reform away from the bad old days. And here's a chance for them to walk the walk. Mm. But uh, it's, it's not really clear how much they're going to walk the walk. The world's Beijing correspondent, Mary Kay Magstad, thanks very much. Thank you, Marco. Jeffrey Bader served as special assistant to President Obama and as senior director for East Asian Affairs on the National Security Council until last year. Currently, he's a fellow at the Brookings Institution. Jeff Bader, the the Chinese government says the U.S. government is interfering in China's internal affairs. What do you make of this? Uh, I think that's what one would expect the Chinese to say under the circumstances. Clearly, they were unhappy that Chen Guangcheng, the uh, dissident uh, who's been in uh, the U.S. Embassy for the last six days, uh, found his way into the embassy, presumably with some uh, assistance. So they regard that as uh, interference in their internal affairs, and I'm not surprised that they would say this. So China wants the U.S. government to apologize for what the Chinese are calling the inappropriate use of a diplomatic mission. They also want the U.S. to promise it'll never happen again. Does this mean the U.S. and China are at a diplomatic standoff? No, on the contrary. Uh, The U.S. is not going to apologize. That will not happen. What the Chinese are seeking here is to demonstrate to their own people that they are in charge uh, of this matter, that this is not a case where the U.S. is dictating terms. And the other thing they want to assure is that there is not a repetition. So they're looking to put the U.S. on notice that this should not become a precedent for future such events where dissidents will show up at the U.S. embassy and gain asylum. Uh, This, I think, in the minds of both the Chinese and the Americans was a a one-time affair. No one wants to see the U.S. embassy turned into a a regular asylum for this kind of case. And still, uh, seeking shelter in an embassy generally is an age-old tradition all over the globe. It's very rare. The U.S. government, as a matter of law and as a matter of practice, does not provide asylum Mm. uh, in its embassies anywhere. There have been one or two cases, uh, Cardinal Mincente in Hungary during the Cold War, a group of Pentecostals in Moscow during the Cold War, 
where people stayed in U.S. embassies for a very long time. But the fact of the matter is that the U.S. government has no ability to get someone out uh, of an embassy into exile abroad, even if the individual wanted to. So the U.S. does not have a doctrine of diplomatic asylum in embassies. What we do have a doctrine of is temporary refuge for people seeking uh, protection from a mob or from, from imminent danger. Uh, so that was the legal basis on which Chen Guangcheng was uh, given sanctuary. There are reports that a U.S. official told Chen that Chinese authorities threatened to beat his wife if Chen didn't leave the U.S. embassy. If the U.S. was aware of those threats, why are they portraying the deal for Chen's leaving the embassy as satisfactory? I am told, uh, I believe, authoritatively and accurately that the U.S. government was not aware of any threats to beat Chun or his family, that no such threats were conveyed by or in the presence of U.S. government officials to Chun. I think that the the way the negotiation unfolded, the Chinese conveyed that the deal that they were offering was not going to be on the table forever, and that if Chun did not accept the deal that they had negotiated, then Chun's wife who was in Beijing, would go back to Shandong. There was no conveying of a threat uh, to beat anyone. Jeff Bader, you were at the U.S. Embassy in 1989 during the Tiananmen uprising, and you were directly involved in the case of Fang Lijie, a pro-democracy activist who took shelter at the U.S. Embassy and ended up staying there a year. I know Fang's case and Chen's case are very different, but just take us back to your involvement in Fang's case and what it was like. Yes, Marco. I was um, actually the acting director of the China desk at the State Department uh, on June 4th, 1989, when the Chinese assaulted Tiananmen. I came into the embassy the next the next day and was told that uh, Fang and his wife and son had come into the embassy seeking asylum because he was identified by the Chinese government as the black hand who was responsible for the unrest. And uh, I was told that the embassy had talked to Fong for several hours and then he had decided to return to the Jianguo Hotel elsewhere in Beijing not to seek asylum. He was basically encouraged not to seek asylum. Mm. I said that this was not satisfactory uh, and that they should bring him, his wife and his son back into the embassy for protection. There was some discussion and – but finally Mm -hmm. we communicated to them – the embassy, that they should bring him back in, which they did. He was brought back in. uh, And then Ambassador Lilly, late Ambassador Lilly, negotiated for the next year on Fong's exile to the U.S. That case was different in multiple respects, as you've indicated. One is that Fong was seeking exile from the beginning. He was he almost certainly would have faced at minimum life imprisonment or execution had he stayed in China. So exile was the only choice. The other interesting feature of it was that our embassy was essentially frozen out of all relations with the Chinese during the course of the next year while Fong stayed in the embassy. Uh, Ambassador Lilly was able to negotiate his departure from China, but uh, there were essentially no other relations between the Chinese government and the U.S. embassy so long as Fang and his wife were in the embassy. So returning to the current episode of Chen Guangcheng, what are the terms that China offered to protect Chen? Well, I gather what they've said is that uh, he would not be returned to Shantung province where he was held in house arrest, that he would be taken to a new place with his wife and children, that he would have the opportunity to have university education. He's a self-taught lawyer. He wants to have a legal education. Um, That the U.S. government would have periodic uh, access 
to him to check on his status and that he would be treated uh, humanely. I think that's the essence of what the, the Chinese said. Uh, this was satisfactory to Chun, and that was what our officials were seeking to assure, was, uh, was Chun being offered something that was his wish. How confident are you that the, the, the terms will be honored? Well, I think the main point is that Chun seemed sufficiently confident they'd be honored, so a decision was made uh, by him to leave. Uh, predicting future Chinese conduct on this, I can't really say. I think the only thing I'd say is that the Chinese have made some unusual commitments in this case. Uh, uh, given Secretary Clinton's personal involvement in it uh, and the prominence of this case in the U.S.-China relationship, if the Chinese were to persecute him or arrest him, Obviously, it would be a, a, a large issue in U.S.-China relations. Uh, so that gives the Chinese uh, hopefully some significant disincentive for doing that kind of thing. But one can't uh, make guarantees. Guarantees are not obtainable in this kind of situation. Uh, China's a sovereign country and uh, they'll make their own decisions. But they have made commitments uh, in, uh, which are exposed to, to the public. Uh, it would certainly be – uh, damaging to them and to our relationship if they went back on them. So just to update, Chen has spoken to the Associated Press, and, and he says he fears for his wife and wife's and daughter's safety, and he wants to leave. So would the U.S. be, be willing to bring him to the United States to offer him asylum? Uh, Marco, to me, that's completely speculative. He, is, as I say, spent six days with U.S. officials and never said anything like that. If he is saying that now, um, the U.S. government is, uh, U.S. government officials are reading that in the media. He had five days, six days in which to say it to U.S. government officials. Never said it. Um, uh, we're dealing with a new situation based on a media report that I can't judge. I just don't know how to evaluate statements by someone who was saying the, something very different for six days and now uh, reportedly is saying something else. Do you think it's realistic for Chen to continue his work as an activist lawyer in China, given that so many activist lawyers have been re arrested recently? I think it would be a significant challenge. It would be difficult. Uh, the Chinese leadership in the last few years has certainly not shown much tolerance of high-profile activism of a sort that uh, Chen has engaged in the past. So I think this would be very difficult. Jeffrey Bader, a fellow at the Brookings Institution, he served as special assistant to President Obama and as the senior director for East Asian Affairs on the National Security Council until last year. His new book is called Obama and China's Rise, an insider's account of America's Asia strategy. Jeffrey, thank you. Thank you, Marco. Still ahead on the program, the view from Kabul on President Obama's late night visit there. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The Central American nation of Nicaragua is officially in mourning. That's in honor of Tomas Borges. The last living founder of the Sandinista National Liberation Front died Monday at the age of 81. His passing is a major milestone for Nicaragua. Borges not only helped launch the Sandinista movement that eventually toppled the hated Somoza dictatorship in 1979, he was a major player in the Sandinista government that followed, which became a major headache for the United States in the 1980s. Stephen Kinzer was a New York Times reporter in Nicaragua back then. He says that for a time... Borges embodied for many Nicaraguans the ideals of the romantic rebel poet who stood in defiance of the American imperialists. 
Borges was one of the last survivors of a generation of idealistic radicals in Latin America who were completely inspired by Fidel Castro and wanted to do in their own countries what Castro had done in Cuba. In fact, Borges was once asked to name his five most admired figures, and he named Fidel Castro in all five positions. Mm -hmm. He did spend years fighting at a time when fighting against the dictatorship seemed crazy. He was one of the very few who was at it for 20 years by the time that uh, the Sandinistas took power. He felt that entitled him to a good share of responsibility, and a good share of responsibility is what he got. Well, I think what may be most intriguing for many Americans who don't know that much about Tomas Borges is his rivalry with uh, the better-known Daniel Ortega, who became president of Nicaragua. Borges saw himself as a contender. Borges really felt that he was running the country and made a lot of decisions on his own. When it came to security matters, uh, he was the boss. During the Sandinista-Contra War in the 1980s, for example, he decided that the way to treat the Mosquito Indians on the Atlantic coast was harshly. Mm. Uh, He did not have any tolerance for their ideas of ethnic autonomy, and he was quite ruthless. Right, and another example is when he was put in charge of the secret police after the Sandinistas overthrew Somoza in 1979. He had been a torture victim. Now uh, the tables were turned. It's true. He ran the same infamous prison in Nicaragua that General Somoza, the old dictator, had run. And from what we heard from people who emerged from there, conditions hadn't really improved. He actually was a precursor of something that we saw happening in later years with the Sandinista movement, and that is that it became almost the mirror image of the Somoza dictatorship. Borges wrote a memoir, uh, The Patient Impatience, and in it he writes about Che Guevara. He is the man we would all have liked to be, if only for a few hours. It must cause infinite pleasure not to know what arrogance is, never to have been scarred by a double standard of morality. Implicit in that writing, uh, Stephen Kinzer, is kind of an honesty to see in himself fallibility. What was that fault line for Borges? Where was he weak? Borges felt that he could manipulate anybody. And a lot of evidence supported his belief. He was one of the greatest seducers of women I ever met in my life. He was famous for Mm. this in Nicaragua. I even knew an American woman in Nicaragua that he seduced over the phone. (laughs) After 20 minutes on the phone, she was on her way downstairs to get a car that he had sent over to pick him up. And I once asked him about this. How do you do this? And he had a very interesting answer. He said, a great revolutionary is always, by definition, a great seducer because they're the same thing. You have to persuade someone that what you want them to do is what they themselves actually want to do. He was very aware of his ability to manipulate people. He took a little pride in it. On the other hand, it gave him a kind of a cynicism to realize how easily this can be done. Stephen, remind us of the fate of Borges and his fellow Sandinistas when they returned to power in 2007. What happened essentially was that Of the eight other commandantes with whom Daniel Ortega ruled during the 1980s, seven turned against him. They denounced him for being a dictator and tried to take over the Sandinista party from him. Borges remained faithful to Ortega, uh, along with, I guess, just one other commandante. Mm. So they were an isolated group, but they wound up victorious. Now, with the Sandinistas back in power, I think they've lost all revolutionary illusions. And uh, we see that 
Although there is a certain proclaimed interest in the poor, the fact is that maintaining themselves in power is all that the Sandinistas are about now. And, and this is something that we thought would never happen. It is a sort of a cautionary tale for those of us who like to think that revolutions change everything. And the rebel poet figure, also a thing of the past? I think the image of this uh, romantic Che Guevara-type figure uh, who could wipe away all injustice and usher in uh, an era of freedom and peace for everybody died partly in Cuba. It certainly died a a more uh, cruel death in Nicaragua. The world is a more realistic place now, and... uh, In a way, the loss of that romantic idealism inspired in many parts of Latin America by Fidel Castro is sad. On the other hand, maybe it's just a function of growing up and realizing how the world really works. Mm. I think there's still a book to be written, though, on revolution and seduction. And uh, Tomas Borges will undoubtedly be one of the main figures. (laughs) Stephen Kinzer, a professor of international relations at Boston University, he's also the author of Blood of Brothers, Life and War in Nicaragua. Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you. From a late icon of Latin America's left to a Latin American who's trying to make his name on the political right in Britain, Carlos Cortilia is a candidate in tomorrow's election for mayor of London. He's an immigrant from Uruguay, and here's the surprising thing. He's a member of the far-right British National Party, known for its harsh anti-immigrant rhetoric. In the past, the party has campaigned to stop all immigration into the U.K. That would keep out people like Carlos Cortilia. He was born in Uruguay to an Italian father, and he's now married to another immigrant, a Russian. The candidate spoke recently to the BBC TV program Daily Politics, and the interviewer grilled him about the apparent contradiction between his background and his party's rhetoric. People will find it strange that someone who is an immigrant, who has done well in this country, who is part of the reason why people think immigration overall has been rather a good thing for Britain, particularly for London, is representing a party that would send you back if it had half a chance. I, I will say to you, the problem in this country, and it's a, it's a situation that all political parties, including the Conservatives, the Labour Party and Lib Dems, agree is the issue of managing immigration. It's not the issue of stopping people coming here because that will never happen because it's not part of any modern country. If you have, for example, a country like UK that has no control of its borders because basically the immigration policy is being influenced by being a member of the European mm-hmm. Union, I say to you, we have a country, we have elected authorities, our authorities should be running our immigration okay. policy, not Europe. Cortilia also pointed out that his party is against illegal immigrants, not those who, like Cortilia, entered the country through legal means. The BBC anchor then reminds Cortilia that the British National Party favors offering financial grants to people of foreign descent living in Britain who agree to leave permanently. How much would it take to send you back to Uruguay? I would say to you, you have to raise a lot of money because I said I established my family in the UK. My three children are born in London. And I've been here for almost a quarter of a century. And I say the reason I came here is still valid, and I love this country, and I want to represent it. Not much of a chance he'll get to do that as mayor of London, though. Carlos Cortilia is currently in last place out of seven candidates for the job, with a projected 1% of the vote. The two top contenders are the conservative incumbent, Boris Johnson, and the former London mayor, Ken Livingston, of the Labour Party. By the way, you can see more of that BBC interview with London's Uruguayan mayoral candidate at theworld.org. This is PRI. 
I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, the view from Mali's capital as violent clashes continue in the wake of a military coup. Plus, Nigerian singer Debange spices American hip-hop with African rhythms. Debange still got his roots in there with the Yoruba sound, with the Yoruba language in his music. That sets him apart. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. President Obama said last night that the tide has turned in Afghanistan. But just hours after his surprise trip to the country, Taliban insurgents answered with more of the same. They staged an attack in Kabul that killed at least seven people. The president traveled in secret to Afghanistan to sign a new strategic agreement. The deal spells out a long-term American role in the country beyond 2014, when most U.S. troops are scheduled to leave. While many Americans heard about the deal from the president himself in a televised speech last night, most Afghans didn't even know about Obama's middle-of-the-night visit until after they woke up hours later. Sultana Parvanto lives in Kabul. She's a consultant in economic development. Sultana, what's your reaction to President Obama's surprise visit? Well, it's always good to have President Obama visiting us. It's just we didn't know. Nobody knew. He came in the middle of the night, signed an agreement, and then left. A couple of interesting things I have my personal view is that it's really good to have some assurance in connection with the United States in Afghanistan beyond 2014. We're very worried about the few recent developments, and we were very concerned about what's going to happen to us after the um, NATO troops and the forces leave. Mm. Uh, There are a lot of concern because there's still not peace and stability here. The other point that I'm thinking about is that nor he nor Mr. Karzai gave any information prior to the visit about what are the contents of this agreement. You know, there there were some rumors and some information, but nothing was specific. Well, news is just beginning to spread in Kabul about what was in this agreement uh, the two presidents signed last night. How do people feel about what they've learned so far? I think that the people are encouraged, uh, the people who really want peace and stability here, they're encouraged. It's almost like the most important thing is that we will have some support and stability here. And the contents look good. I think personally, the most important one for me and for my friends is the piece about stressing the point about election. Hmm. It is very important to us that the election will not be hijacked. The process will happen. It will be clear and transparent, and it will be with the help and monitoring of the international assistance over the process of election. We have a very bad memory uh, and bad experience in 2009 when the election was full of fraud and cheatings and really bad things happened. And so this is a transition time. This is the transition of Afghan government, the transition of the forces. It's a critical time. So, yeah, the most important part of that was perhaps the election one. 
Right. Transparent elections, uh, obviously a big part of that uh, new strategic agreement. I mean, Hamid Karzai was seen as one of the problems with uh, those uh, parliamentary elections uh, back in 2009, as you were saying. He's had his ups and downs in Afghanistan. What is Karzai's credibility like these days? Do the Afghan people trust him to sign this agreement on their behalf? It's kind of continuously being on the minus side, I would say it's decreasing. We as Afghans who, again, are seeing the brutality of the Taliban every day in the terrorist and he calling them brothers, my brothers, you know, I mean, we don't want the president's brothers to be terrorizing us every day. You know, today, this the body of those kids who were on the way to school and they were killed in a very brutal manner. No, no, no. We just don't like this kind of a stuff. You just can't do that. You know? So they are showing their, their power and their negative influence everywhere. Uh, I'm afraid they're strong and they're getting help. And it's not helping when our president calls the Taliban brothers and is extending a hand of friendship to them. It's very confusing in terms of the world's politics, the West. The U.S. are negotiating with Taliban. I mean, what is this negotiating? You know, what are they negotiating about? For 10 years, this negotiation is trying to happen and while they're killing us every day in our streets. Sultana Parvanta, a Kabul resident, thank you very much for your time. Always good to speak with you. Thanks. Oh, thank you, Marco. Five weeks after a coup in the West African nation of Mali, there is still confusion and uncertainty there. Today, coup leaders said they fought off an attempt by troops loyal to the ousted president to seize back power. But gunfire continued to be heard throughout the capital, Bamako, throughout the day. Lisa Nichols is project director with ATN Plus, a health project funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development. She's lived in Bamako for over eight years. Lisa Nichols, what is it like in Bamako today? Well, I can't really speak for what's going on outside the walls of my compound because the U.S. Embassy more or less asked citizens to stay uh, home. And so I haven't been out. My understanding, though, from what I hear is that there has been some unrest in town. You work for a project that is funded by USAID. What's happened to that project? Well, on April 2nd, projects were suspended because uh, foreign assistance was suspended, except for humanitarian assistance, of course. There, there is a major food uh, insecurity in the region throughout the Sahel, so those activities will continue for, for the moment. But other activities, particularly those with the government, mm. have been suspended. And Lisa, are you concerned about what these political events could uh, mean for the long term on Mali's health care? If, if things go on like this for a while? Yes, very much. Because what people don't understand, even though there is some cost recovery, not all costs are covered in a health system, obviously, by payment for drugs and services. There's a lot of subsidizing. There's a lot of international assistance for vaccination, for example, for disease surveillance, for um pharmaceutical supplies. There's a a lot of outside assistance that's needed. And so my concern also is with the displaced population coming south. A lot of them don't have immunity against malaria, for example, and there will be epidemics. There's also the threat of measles and meningitis epidemics as well. And there are a lot of those uh, internally displaced people uh, leaving the north right now. So I I imagine the threats are, are pretty severe. 
Right. The last number was about 300,000, but keep in mind that a fair portion of those are in refugee camps in Mauritania, Burkina, and Niger. So I think internally I've seen anything from 50,000 to 75,000, which is quite possible because a lot of people in the North have families in the South who have incomes, but that safety net gets very, very fragile in these times. So I'm generally concerned about the whole country and not just uh, not just uh, the North. Now, as we said, you've been in Bamako for over eight years. Are you planning to stay in Mali? What, what information are you getting from the U.S. Embassy that's kind of affecting that decision, maybe? I'm staying. The project uh, will is continuing. So I don't have any plans to leave. Right now, we're supposed to go back to work tomorrow. The prime minister was on TV today asking everyone to go back to work tomorrow. And uh, that's what we're planning to do right now. Lisa Nichols, project director with ATN Plus, a health project funded by the USAID based in Mali. Thanks very much, Lisa. Appreciate it. Thank you. A key factor feeding into the unrest in Mali is the return of Malians from Libya last year. Tens of thousands came home after the outbreak of the uprising there. As we heard yesterday, most of them were economic migrants now struggling to get by at home. Some of the returnees were Tuaregs, a nomadic group in the north of Mali. Reporter Marine Olivesi has a story of one Tuareg military man who came back to northern Mali with independence on his mind. General Mohamed Ali is a Tuareg from Timbuktu who moved to Libya in the 1960s. He introduces himself as a true general. Four decades of service in Muammar Gaddafi's army earned Ali the highest military rank and a Libyan passport. Ali says he took part in all of Gaddafi's African wars in Chad, Sudan, Angola, each time receiving a seven-figure bonus for his military skills. He fought for Gaddafi during all the key battles in last year's uprising. When the regime finally collapsed in the fall, Ali and his Tuareg battalion returned to Mali. He says Malian authorities sent four ministers to greet him and his men. The greeting included cash. Ali won't exactly say how much, but speaking by phone from Timbuktu, Ali says other Tuareg groups received even more. He said the people of Kidal who brought weapons received more. They were heavily armed. It's why they got more money than they did. Some of the estimated 2,000 Tuaregs who returned to Mali after Qaddafi's fall brought light and heavy artillery with them. Authorities feared the returning Tuaregs would revive a long-simmering rebellion in the north. Local media have reported that the Malian government lavished tens of thousands of dollars on them. Amadou Wegalo works on migrants' affairs at the Ministry of Malians abroad. Everybody knew about it. The Malian workers who were in Libya for economic reasons protested because they got nothing, and they thought that was unfair. But the financial help the Tuaregs received was political. The government was trying to appease them. That didn't work out. Tuaregs attacked a military base in North Mali in mid-January. By early April, they had taken control of the North's main towns and declared the independent state of Azawad. General Ali, who's part of the Azawad Liberation Movement, says it's long overdue. He said he is asking a question. 
Don't they have the right to independence? General Ali left Mali during the first major Tuareg rebellion that broke out shortly after the country gained independence in 1960. Over the following decades, thousands of Malian Tuaregs found refuge and a warm welcome in Libya. Muammar Gaddafi portrayed himself as a champion of the Tuaregs' cause. But then Gaddafi fell and the Tuaregs came home. Now the Tuaregs and other Malians say the turmoil in the country is a direct result of the regime change in Libya. Some call it collateral damage. Others blame NATO for failing to anticipate how disruptive the collapse of a 42-year-old regime would be for the Sahel region. Omar Sidibe is an advocate for Malian migrants. He says many African voices, including the African Union, raised concerns about NATO's intervention in Libya. But he says the international community didn't listen. They wanted Gaddafi out, whatever it took, even if his fall brought chaos to the whole region. Now Mali is split in two with no diplomatic or military solution in sight. A military coup ousted the government in Bamako in March, and the newly appointed interim president struggles to transfer power back to civilian rule. Aruna Traoré is one of the many Malian migrants who went to Libya for a chance to make a better life for his family and came home with nothing. Aruna says he fled the country in Libya last year only to find his own country sliding towards war. And where I will go again? Where? Which place I can go again? I don't know where I will run to hide myself and with my family. For the world, I'm Marine Olivesi, Bamako, Mali. Marine went to Mali with the help of the French-American Foundation United States. You can hear both parts of her story on returning Malian migrants at theworld.org. A quick note now before we go to our geo-quiz. This is one of the most recognized guitar lines ever. Theme from Shaft opens with that irrepressible wah-wah lick. The music for the black exploitation classic is one of the coolest things, maybe the coolest thing, about the movie. Isaac Hayes sang the theme. Who's the cat that won't pop out when there's danger all about? Right on. Yesterday, the guitarist responsible for the lick, the man who put his stamp on theme from Shaft, passed away. Charles Skip Pitts had been battling cancer for several years. He was 65. Pitts grew up in Washington, D.C., but it was in Memphis, working with Isaac Hayes, that Skip Pitts found his groove. That groove was felt all over the globe. In 1999, a French-Algerian singer named Malik Adouan gained international fame with his take on theme from Shaft. You may have heard it before on this program, but it's such a great way to honor Charles Skip Pitts that we just have to play it again today. Oh, and the cool defiance of the tune is definitely still there, only this time in Arabic. We have some of that classic wah-wah at our website. Reminisce with the Shaft theme at theworld.org. Now, as promised, our geo-quiz. The English city of Gloucester likes to present a gift to the British monarch on special occasions, like next month's Diamond Jubilee, the 60th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's ascent to the throne. Ever since the Middle Ages, Gloucester's gift has been a pie. 
made with slippery eel-like creatures called sea lampreys. I actually almost thought it was a joke. I said, you got to be kidding. You want lamprey for a pie that you're going to present to the queen, and you think that's a great gesture? The thing is, sea lampreys aren't so easy to find in England anymore, but they're incredibly plentiful in the lake we'd like you to name. The lamprey that we have for the queen's ceremonial pie came from Lake... Whoa, he almost let the answer slip. This lake is shared by two North American countries and has the largest freshwater island in the world. Okay, you name the lake, we'll tell you more about the pie in just a bit. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS and Masterpiece, presenting the new season of Sherlock, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman as crime fighting's favorite team. The game is on Sunday, May 6th at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The English city of Gloucester is preparing a special pie for Queen Elizabeth's upcoming Diamond Jubilee. In our GeoQuiz, we asked you to name the lake where the main ingredient is coming from. Mark Gaydon is with the Great Lakes Fishery Commission in Detroit. He's in England this week to hand over two pounds of frozen fish. Well, it's a lamprey pie, so we are supplying the critical ingredient, the lamprey, from Lake Huron. And the reason why they had to look to our part of the world for the lamprey pie to present to the queen for her jubilee is because uh, lamprey are protected and pretty scarce here in the United Kingdom. On the Great Lakes, we have the opposite problem. They're invasive. Uh, They swam their way in through shipping canals, and they were incredibly destructive on our fishery. We have a lot of lamprey in the Great Lakes, so when they called and said, um, we're desperate, we need uh, the key ingredient to the jubilee pie, we were uh, more than happy to help. Sort a few things out for us here. What is a sea lamprey? What does it look like? Why would the queen want to eat a pie made of these things? Uh, They are long and thin. They look like snakes. And they have a suction cup mouth that is ringed with sharp teeth and a file-like tongue. And the lamprey will attach to a fish, bore a hole through the side of the fish, and feed on the fish's blood and body fluids. The problem is, is nothing preys on the lamprey. They're invasive to the system. So it's actually quite a big problem that we're dealing with in the Great Lakes Basin. Have you ever tasted the pie? I have not. Uh, I've seen pictures of it. It looks awfully nice. It's got the coat of arms of the city. This is the one they made 10 years ago for her uh, Golden Jubilee, Mm. which we also helped uh, supply the lamprey for. But it's an awfully nice-looking pie. They put the coat of arms of the city on it and, and present it to the queen. But no, I've never tried a lamprey or a lamprey pie. They've been making this pie since pretty much the Middle Ages, and really what it meant uh, to the city and to the people who uh, who worked the land and the rivers and what they had to pay it, it re- in respects to the monarch. Uh, I thought, what an interesting uh, tradition. That's one that I'm not used to, but uh, we have them uh, coming out of our ears, so we were more than happy to supply them. How many people around the Great Lakes eat lampreys? Lamprey are not eaten in the Great Lakes Basin for a number of reasons. One is we're trying to get rid of them. Uh, they are uh, just incredibly destructive to our fishery, and nobody really um, would even think of eating a lamprey because they're not a delicacy, they're not uh, well-regarded. Well, maybe if more people around the Great Lakes ate lamprey, there wouldn't be such an invasive problem. Well, the good news is that we control lamprey. We keep their populations reduced by about 90% from their historic high, and we actually kill the lamprey before they have a chance to grow 
that suction cup killer mouth that they have. So we uh, we get them before they get the fish, and uh, our fishery has resurged quite dramatically since lamprey control began in the 1950s. Uh, without the lamprey, we wouldn't have trout or salmon, uh, perch or walleye or some of the other great species that we have in the lakes. Are you going to be able to taste lamprey pie on this trip to the UK? I'm not. We're going to be, uh, this is the uh, sort of the official handover of, of the lamprey to the city. I'll be uh, presenting the lamprey on behalf of the Great Lakes Fishery Commission uh, to the mayor and members of the city council of Gloucester. And then uh, sometime during the summer, the city chef is going to make the lamprey pie, you know, almost the, the size of a wedding cake with several layers and uh, mm-hmm. a special crust. Uh, the coat of arms of the city will be part of the crust. And then it'll be presented to the pie during her, uh, to the queen during her um, Jubilee celebration. Mark Gaydon with the Great Lakes Fishery Commission, speaking to us all the way from Henley on Thames in the United Kingdom. All right, Mark, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. So Lake Huron is the answer to our geo-quiz today. We don't have the exact pie recipe to share, but we did just post the names of our texting game winners today at theworld.org. Finally today, Nigeria has produced several of Africa's top musicians. Fela Kuti and his sons Femi and Sheun come to mind here. Well, reporter Bruce Wallace introduces us to a Nigerian musician taking to the global stage. Before he starts the interview, Dabanj has one thing to make clear. In case you didn't know, I'm Dabanj, or Skibanj like my Jamaican friends call me, Capella like my South Africans call me, Mensa in Ghana, Free K in Liberia, Sonko in Kenya. And I'm in New York. I haven't been given a name yet, you know, so I'm waiting maybe on this historic night I would get a special name. Got it? All right, let's do this. Dabanj, actual given name Oladapo Daniel Oyabanjo, started lighting up the Nigerian music world in 2005 with his debut album No Long Thing. The music mixes in some West African elements, a little highlife here, a little Afrobeat there, some lyrics in Nigerian pidgin English. But mostly it strives for a broader, international, pop, R&B, hip-hop style. This one, Oliver Twist, is probably Dabanja's biggest hit to date. Oliver Twist, as we know, is, um, is, is now to take credit for that. It's um, Charles Dickens. The song finds a pop star moral in the Dickens novel, which follows an orphan's trials in the London underworld. I have one girlfriend, but I still want more. I have one car. I have a Bentley, but I still I wouldn't mind to have a Ferrari. And when I get a Ferrari, I wouldn't mind to have a Bugatti. So Oliver Twist is always asking for more, which is what the story originally says. That means you shouldn't be afraid to ask for what you want. So I thought we'd do something great about that, that we do it until you get the best. Debanj does seem to be getting what he wants. Oliver Twist has been all over the Nigerian airwaves since it came out last summer. It's also become a mainstay of a major UK club scene called Afrobeats that pulls together various pop musics from all around the African continent. His biggest break, though, came at the end of 2010, when he was heading home after a show in Dubai. At the airport, um, I pulled up with all my crew, my management and bodyguards and everyone, and one of the hairstress, she ran up to me with a plaque in front of it, and it had Kanye West on it. And she said, Mr. Kanye West, Mr. Kanye West. I said, oh, no, I'm not Kanye West, I'm the band. Maybe I look like Kanye West, but sorry. Dabanj and his crew realized that Kanye and his crew were nearby, and Dabanj's manager hustled off to try and arrange a meeting. 
I just saw him coming back and he said, yo, can you say five minutes? I said, five minutes? I need two. And I got there and five became 45 minutes. And I almost missed my flight. And he listened to all my records, most of them the ones that I had on my iPad. This chance encounter led Kanye to sign up to produce new music by DeBange. The first results of that are due out soon. Kanye makes a cameo in a new video for Oliver Twist, and he helped out with DeBange's sold-out show in New York City, where I caught up with him. Aha! I'm DeBange. Oskimanda Kwajibaka Press call me. Importer, exporter, cocoa water. The news of Dubanj signing with Kanye was huge in Nigeria. Namdi Moata is the host of Radio Aphrodisia, an African music show in Southern California. He's from Nigeria, and he says that the African sounds that Dubanj still has in his music make him different from a lot of the other stuff you hear on pop radio there. Everybody wants to sound like Dr. Dre or want to sound like Ice Cube, but with Dubanj, he still got his roots in there with the Yoruba sound, with the Yoruba language in his music. That, that sets him apart. But as he goes global, Dubanj's countrymen still want some attention too. The star has been criticized recently for not being more politically outspoken on Nigerian issues. And as he moves into Kanye's orbit, his hometown press is filled with reports about a falling out between him and his Nigerian producer and several other longtime collaborators. With great hits comes great responsibility. <laughs> For The World, I'm Bruce Wallace. You can see what a DeBange concert is like. We have a slideshow on his recent show in New York City at theworld.org. That's our program today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, the Henry Luce Foundation for Increased Understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Online at macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International.